This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. I'm recording this on Friday, September the 4th, 2020. And today, we have to talk about, will NXT move from Wednesday to Tuesday night? What does the USA Network really think about NXT? Brock Lesnar is gone, and I have a theory that may totally upset all of my previous preconceived notions about just how wrestling booms happen in the wrestling business. All that and more, coming up next. But first... In some late-breaking news, just as I sit down to record this podcast, according to Wrestling Inc., in an exclusive report, Vince McMahon is threatening to punish talent who are working with third parties like Cameo and Twitch. WWE held a call with talent last Sunday regarding the reinvention of the product. During the call, talent was reminded that the company owns not only their character names, but their real legal names as well. This call was followed by a letter to Talent from McMahon saying that Talent has 30 days to stop engaging with these third parties. According to Wrestling Inc., the letter reads, Some of you are engaged with outside third parties using your name and likeness in ways that are detrimental to our company. It is imperative that these activities be terminated within 30 days, which would be Friday, October 2nd. Continued violations will result in fines, suspension, or termination at WWE's discretion. So if you don't know, Twitch is a popular video streaming uh, platform where I know people like AJ Styles and Dakota Kai are streaming their video game play. And Cameo, of course, is a platform where you can buy video messages from celebrities like your favorite WWE superstar. And if talent doesn't cease doing this within 30 days, well, Vince McMahon is apparently ready to say, Screw you! You're fired! But wait a minute. WWE owns not just the character names, but the legal names of their talent? That can't possibly be true, is it? Well, let's look at the latest talent contract that we have, which is Stephanie McMahon's contract, which probably has very similar language to all the other contracts that are uh, current right now. And if we look at that contract in Section 3, Intellectual Property, Paragraph 3.1, all service marks, trademarks, and other distinctive and identifying indicia, indicia, uh, indicia, indicia means signs, indications, or distinguishing marks. So anyway, all service marks, trademarks, and other distinctive and identifying indicia used by wrestler prior to the effective date in connection with the business of professional wrestling included, but not limited to, wrestler's legal name. Nickname, ring name, license, <laughs> likeness, personality, character, characters, signature, costumes, props, gimmicks, gestures, routines, and themes, which are owned by wrestler or in which wrestler has any rights anywhere in the world, collectively the wrestler intellectual property, are described and identified on Exhibit A attached here to and incorporated herein by reference. Uh, so that's the one mention of legal name in the following paragraph. Uh, 3.2, except for the wrestler intellectual property specifically set forth in Exhibit A, 
any intellectual property rights, including but not limited to trademark, service marks, copyrighted works, and or distinctive and identifying indicia, including legal name, ring name, nickname, likeness, personality, character, caricature, signatures, props, gestures, routines, themes, incidents, dialogue, actions, gags, costumes, or parts of costumes, accessories, crowns, inventions, championship, title, or other belts if applicable, and any other items of tangible or intangible property, written, composed, submitted, added, improvised, created, and or used by or associated with wrestlers' performance in the business of professional wrestling or sports entertainment, which were procured, owned, or created by the promoter during the term, or those which were procured, owned, or created by the promoter prior to the term, and which are described and identified on Exhibit B, attached hereto and incorporated herein by reference. Collectively, the promoter intellectual property shall belong to promoter in perpetuity, with promoter retaining all such ownership rights uh, exclusively throughout the world, notwithstanding any termination of this agreement. So, I'm not a lawyer, but what I'm gathering from that is that when you sign a contract with WWE, uh, you are to declare in Exhibit A what intellectual property you are bringing to the relationship, which might include your legal name. I would guess you might declare your legal name as part of your own intellectual property if you had been using your legal name as your character wrestler name previous to signing with WWE. That would be my guess. You can read this contract for yourself. It is linked right now on the WrestleNomics Twitter account. Uh, the, the, the Stephanie contract that I'm referencing was published because it was filed with the SEC uh, because she is one of the named WB executives. Uh, people on Twitter are outraged by this. I will say this is bizarre, and it, it just raises more uh, questions about the broad control of the work that WB has over its supposed independent contractors who are quite clearly, in my view, and the view of, I think, anybody who looks closely and honestly at this, are clearly uh, misclassified as independent contractors and should be classified as employees. And in fact, I wrote a little bit about this subject in my SWAT analysis of WWE this week, which you can find at WrestleNomics.com. And uh, if you read that paragraph, which I guess I will just read right now, it sort of gets at the question of, well, why, if they are misclassified, why doesn't somebody sue them? Why, why, how does WWE continue to get away with misclassifying its workers as independent contractors when they're clearly uh, being treated as employees? So I'll just read what I wrote here uh, under threats. Uh, and again, this relates to the employee independent contractor issue. There's no active lawsuit of this nature. Uh, the company's greatest legal liability is probably in its continued classification of wrestlers as independent contractors while exuding great control over their work. There is no active lawsuit of this nature. Statutes, statutes of limitations and performers desire to stay on good terms with the company even after termination are a deterrent. So are things just stuck being this way forever? AEW also classifies many of its wrestlers as independent contractors. Many of them are also in dual roles as employees. Probably, though, AEW does not exude the, a similar amount of control. But anyway, uh, I, I, I went on uh, talking about this issue. However, we're entering an era where WWE's virtual monopolistic grip on the wrestling industry is releasing, and there are more alternate ways to make a great living as a wrestler. In other words, maybe the I want to stay on good terms with WWE so I won't sue them deterrent isn't as much of a deterrent if WWE isn't the only place to make a great living as a wrestler. 
Furthermore, WWE stated plans to expand training centers and developmental brands into territories throughout the world which is Executive Vice President Paul Levesque's global localization strategy, that would likely require a growing number of contracted wrestlers, which would increase the population of potential plaintiffs. That's good alliteration, isn't it? Population of potential plaintiffs. WWE could reduce this risk either by reducing the degree of control it holds over its talent, which it clearly is not doing (laughs) this week, or by converting wrestlers... Uh, as of the end of last year, there were around 300 of them. It's probably slightly less now. But they could, at quite an expense, convert their independent contractor wrestlers to employees. That would be very expensive and would cost a lot to shareholder value. But it, the cost would be well within uh, WWE's future projected profit margins, especially with the amount of guaranteed revenue that they have coming in from their various media deals. I did an aggressive estimate um, what the, that cost would be back uh, last year, April, where I ended up aggressively getting to $28 million, a figure Dave Meltzer called insanely high, which is probably right. It's very high, and the, the cost would probably be a fair amount less than $28 million. Uh, by the way, WWE made $77 million in net income last year. Uh, my last estimate, which I'm starting to think was a bit, a bit too hard, or in other words, too low, uh, still estimating around $100 million in profit net income in 2020. So how much does this really hurt WTown? We're talking about Twitch money, Cameo money. Was it really that much? Well, let's take someone like Paige. Paige had 7,000 subscribers on her Twitch channel. She gets $2.50 of that subscription money per month. Figure the standard split is 50% of the subscription revenue. That would be $17,500 per month. Multiply that by 12 months, over $200,000. Uh, split that in half, uh, that's 210. Split 210 in half, $105,000. She'd also be making money. This is just on Twitch. She'd also be making money on ads and donations. I don't know about you, but that's more than I make in a year. Page probably on the high end. But you can see how this would be supplementing the income. We're just talking about Twitch here, not even getting into Cameo. But so what's really happening here? Does, does Vince just want to screw over the talent? And what's probably happening is Vince and WWE want to make a deal as a company, maybe with Twitch itself, maybe with Cameo. They probably want to do, especially in the time of coronavirus, these sort of virtual meet and greets. And any such deal to do to sell talent meet and greets to a distributor is undercut if the talent is individually, as entrepreneurs, just going out there and selling that value themselves. And it, it may have upset Vince that talent was out there doing something that he didn't have control of and making money doing it, thus perhaps lessening their dependence on WWE. More news in a moment. There's a new member of the board of directors for WWE. We'll talk about Steve Payman in a minute. But first, a breaking new, more late-breaking news. I'm told that we have, speaking of live streams, I'm, I'm told that we have a live stream of the consciousness, a stream of, of consciousness live from the mind of the chairman and chief executive officer of World Sports Entertainment. We will go now to that audio live. Goddamn, 75 years old. This damn virus. God, I'm with the pants down. I can't control the virus. I hate it when I feel like I'm not in control. I'm 75 years old. How old am I? 74. I have to redeem myself. I'm, a, I'm an entertainer. 
an entrepreneur. I'm in show business, damn it. Don't tell them the goddamn wrestling business. This is the virus's fault. This is the goddamn government's fault. Quite frankly, take, take this, Oliver Luck. You're fired. Except no, WWE are two completely different companies. Got 400 employees over there. They're all fired. All these people in WWE, I'm gonna fire them too. God, all I am is a pro wrestling promoter. That's all I am. Wrestling. Uh, everything else I've ever tried in my life. I've never been afraid to fail, damn it. That notwithstanding, I'm not some highfalutin elitist. I was gonna be a bodybuilder, bodybuilding promoter. Supplements, I'll get into the supplements business. That's what I thought. I'll promote boxing. I was a failure at that. I'll be a football promoter. I was a goddamn failure at that. I just want people to respect me. Goddamn, nobody respects me because I'm a, I'm a wrestling promoter. Make it sports entertainment. I don't have to do the wrestling anymore. It's entertainment. All my success is from the thing that I fucking hate the most. God damn it! I make movies. That's what I do. I make movies. I make movies. Uh, people laugh at me. They think I'm the pro wrestling guy. They laugh at me. My company. My company is Alpha Entertainment. God damn it! I'm a man. I'm an alpha. I'm in the entertainment business. People laugh at me. I'm so fucking ashamed of myself. Uh, this is only what my dad did. Uh, just Vinny Lupton. Just goddamn Vinny Lupton. WWE announced, what is this, the first, what day of the week was the first, Tuesday, WWE announced Tuesday that Steve Payman, the president and chief operating officer of Parkwood Entertainment, has been elected to the board of directors. Parkwood Entertainment is the production company founded by Beyonce. In, in the press release, there's a nice Vince quote. I can't do any more Vince voice today. As the president and chief operating officer of Parkwood Entertainment, founded by global entertainer Beyonce in 2010, Payman oversees an extensive global media portfolio, including artist management, music production, concert tours, motion pictures, television specials, and consumer products. That's right. Media, live events, and consumer products. What are WWE's three divisions? Live events, media, and consumer products. More on that later. Throughout his tenure, he has achieved critical and commercial success, as evident in the Super Bowl 50 Hall of Fame show, the Lemonade Visual Album, the Formation World Tour, Netflix's homecoming documentary, the Disney Plus film Black is King, among others. Before he worked for Parkwood Entertainment, Payman was the head of sports entertainment marketing for J.P. Morgan Chase. Before J.P. Morgan Chase, he was the vice president of strategy and new business development for the NFL. He served as the senior vice president and general manager of HBO's digital distribution, and he held positions at Time Warner, McKinsey & Company, Citigroup, and Merrill Lynch. Payman has been recognized on Billboard's Power Players list for four straight years, reaching number one as Executive of the Year in 2019 for his work as an executive producer Payman has received two Emmy nominations, two Grammy nominations, and is a Grammy Award winner for Homecoming and a Peabody Award winner for Lemonade. 
So to be clear, board of directors, that, that means you don't work for WWE necessarily uh, a full time, although there are some executives on the board of directors, including Vince, who is the chairman, including Stephanie McMahon and Paul Levesque, both of whom, of course, are executives. But other than that, the board, as, as boards normally are, are largely made up of independent directors, of which payment would be one, people who don't work for WWE as a full-time employee. But oh boy, if there is a secession plan in place, or if it's to be update, updated or edited anytime soon, you know, at some point in the future, I wouldn't be surprised to see one of the members of the board of directors to jump in to be CEO if the day ever arrives where Vince McMahon is not in charge of WWE. As we, we saw when George Berrios was terminated, we saw a member of the board of directors, Frank A. Riddick III, become the interim CFO. Maybe Payman, more than anybody else, sounds like a good CEO, future CEO for WWE, should the day arrive. Other than Stephanie and Paul and Vince, the other current board of directors are Jeffrey Speed, who's the former EVP and Chief Financial Officer of Six Flags, live events, okay? Stuart Yu Goldfarb, who's the co-founder and partner of Mellow 7 Tech Partners. Laureen Ong, the former president of the Travel Channel. Robin W. Peterson, who's the uh, CTO, Chief Technology Officer and Senior Vice President at CNN. Uh, Manjit Singh, who's the former president of Home Entertainment for Sony, and the the next newest addition to the board of directors, Alan M. Wexler, who's the CEO of Publicis Sapient. And what is Publicis Sapient, you ask? Well, everyone knows that Publicist Public, it's, it's such a weird spelling. Anyway, this company is a digital business transformation company helps established organizations get to their future digitally enabled state, both in the way they work and serve their customers. So there's a lot of, a lot of digital type people, some live events type people, some home entertainment type people, some former executives. I don't know that any of them are as, as active and as well-rounded to uh, lead a company like WWE as Steve Payman. Sounds like he is. Again, Payman, the chief operating officer. I don't know, Yahoo News calls him the CEO. But his, his LinkedIn says he's the chief operating officer at Parkwood Entertainment. WWE's corporate site calls him the president and chief operating officer. But as we sit here today, I don't think there's any, you may think about it, I don't think there's any better bet to place than Steve Payman for future WWE CEO. Here's a clip of Payman speaking as part of a Billboard Sports and Branding. What is this? Billboard Brands and Music Roundtable. Uh, at the time, Payman was working as the head of sports and entertainment marketing for JP Morgan Chase. This is from 2014. I totally support that. And honestly, you know, one of the things that, again, we talk about the music industry, it's mostly multifaceted catalog. You know, artists are, you know, honestly coming more to the forefront where we're looking at things that we're not necessarily a hit, but we know automatically evoke a certain emotion. The other thing is that, you know, again, from a bank's perspective, we're aligning ourselves with purchases, whether you buy music, whether you buy tickets, whether you buy admission to a festival, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a lot of how we interact with the music business, and it reduces the risk. So we're not as interested in getting in front of the creative process with, say, Metallica. What we're interested in is getting next to Metallica's fan 
difference in saying as they form their relationship with Metallica, no matter what it is, then they get some particular advantage. And so that opens up a lot of doors. Um, and I just wanted to be clear on that because quite candidly, one of the worst things about brand partnerships in any arena, whether it's um, in music or otherwise, is when it's inorganic, right? And so one of my biggest jobs is to try to make sure we're never in a place that's inorganic. So why would we want to interfere with the creative process of Metallica? That would be stupid. That's not what we do. No different than we don't want to hear a Metallica credit card. I mean, it's just, you know, point blank. But however, if you're a fan of his music, whether it's the new thing, whether it's the current thing, and we can provide that access, we can provide that early listen, we can provide background, backdrop, so you as a fan have a deeper relationship and you attribute that to Chase, well, then the conversation's wide open. I think the thing is, and you know, let's, let's call it spade a spade, half of all advertising is horrible anyway. Half of all sponsorships <laughs> are horrible. It. No, no, it's Only just half, you know, exactly, exactly. Only half, right, right? But, 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 here, no, but here's the holy, here's the holy grail. Half of all music is garbage, right? So, so, Only half? Right, yeah, there you go, there you go. I'm being very, you know, being very conservative for the panel, as a banker should, right? Um, but I don't let you fill in the right percentage. Hopefully Payman will soon find out which percentage of wrestling is garbage. And then from there, Sean Ross Sapp is reporting this week that USA Network has floated the idea of NXT moving from Wednesday, where it currently competes head-to-head with AEW Dynamite, moving from Wednesday to Tuesday, where it did happen to air this week due to preemption due to a National Hockey League game. That's right, NHL on the USA Network, not the U.S. Open, NHL. AEW Dynamite, by the way, airing on Wednesday for the first time ever, not opposed by a first-run episode of WWE NXT on the USA Network, although a rerun of the latest episode of NXT did air simultaneously on NBC Universal's Sci-Fi Network, former home of shows like SmackDown. Just little things like that do support the argument put forth by Dave Meltzer this week, which we'll talk about in a moment, how... Maybe the USA Network does want to compete with AEW as much as WWE does. But this week, NXT, that it aired on Tuesday night, not going head-to-head with AEW, but going head-to-head with Impact Wrestling. Uh, NXT was viewed by 849,000 viewers. Impact Impact was viewed by 102,000 viewers, according to the Torch. The Torch appears to have some special inside info uh, for impact on access, which is not reported on Showbuzz Daily. Showbuzz Daily probably getting their information from Nielsen. I thought access had started to subscribe to Nielsen, but still those numbers are not appearing on Showbuzz Daily. But the Torch reporting 102,000 viewers this Tuesday compared to the prior eight weeks average of 155, so down substantially. The week before doing 171, this week again doing 102 head-to-head with NXT. So Impact was impacted. Impact was hurt by going head-to-head with NXT here. And again, NXT doing 149,000. How does that compare to what NXT usually does when it's in its usual time slot on Wednesday? Well, it did about as well on Tuesday this week as it had on the two prior Wednesdays when it was not opposed by AEW. A week ago, Wednesday, 824,000 viewers. The week before that, 853,000 viewers. Almost exactly the same here on this Tuesday while it had to go head-to-head with Impact Wrestling, another wrestling program, albeit one that's a lot less popular than Dynamite, a lot lot less viewed. And in fact, Key Demo, 18-49, to higher 
than either of those two weeks. At 0.26 this week on the Tuesday, the two prior unopposed Wednesdays, 0.24. So it does, that data does help the argument that, well, maybe Tuesday is a better night, even if it has to go head to head with impact. And how did AEW do this Wednesday, unopposed by NXT for the first time on Wednesday in its normal time slot? AEW sitting here by itself, alone, unopposed, as it was originally supposed to be until WWE decided to put NXT onto the USA Network, away from the WWE Network. I think it's pretty clear lip service aside that the purpose of NXT being on the USA Network, being two hours, going head-to-head with AEW is to prevent AEW from putting up big numbers that look too comparable to Raw and SmackDown. But how did AEW do without NXT there to give them a hit? AEW was viewed by 822,000 viewers and a point three six in the precious 18-49 key demo. What does that mean in context? How did uh, AEW do in recent weeks for comparison? Long story short, that's not a huge jump. AEW did very similar numbers, only slightly slower the last two weeks outside of its normal time slot. On a Thursday last week, on a Saturday the week before that, on the Saturday doing... 805,000 on the Thursday doing 815, again here doing 822,000 in its normal time slot with no competition from NXT. Granted, it had no competition from NXT on either of those days outside of the normal time slot. The .36 in the key demo that it did this week up substantially from the .29 and the .31 of the weeks prior. For comparison though, on August 5th, when AEW ran head-to-head with NXT on a Wednesday night, AEW did an identical 0.36 in the key demo. It did a slightly larger total audience of 827,000 viewers the week after, 828,000 viewers. In other words, the last two weeks that AEW and NXT went head-to-head, the last two weeks, the first two weeks of August was the last time that this happened, where AEW went against NXT head-to-head on Wednesday night. AEW did... Almost identical, slightly higher total audience. In one of those weeks, they did an identical viewership in the key demo, which they value as most important, and advertisers do as well. Yes. Okay. In other words, this show that just happened on Wednesday is not great evidence that NXT is taking a big bite out of AEW. Now, I would venture to guess that if NXT had been going head-to-head with AEW Dynamite on this past Wednesday, the, the rating would be quite a bit lower. Than it was. Maybe if NXT was opposing uh, AEW, this would be one of those weeks where AEW does a low 700,000 or high 600,000 and does like a 0.22 or 0.25 in the demo. And NXT and uh, AEW, they know what the minute by minute ratings are. They know that there is a substantial audience that flips back and forth somewhere in the low hundreds of thousands who switch back and forth between commercials for AEW and NXT. My former co-host Chris Harrington has, I think, tweeted some some of these line graphs that show that kind of activity with the uh, with the y-axis cropped out. So let's not pretend there isn't a significant audience that's switching back and forth and watching both live as they happen. Now, with those facts on the table, one of our intelligent listeners to WrestleNomics Radio sent in this question, which I will read now. Uh, he wrote. On this morning's Wrestling Observer Radio with Dave Meltzer, he was talking about how the USA Network are in a fight with Vince McMahon when it comes to airing head-to-head against AEW and suggesting, Dave was, that it benefits the USA Network for AEW to fail. And hence, 
they are not incentivized to move the show to another night. But that doesn't make sense to me, our listener writes. From my surface-level understanding of the TV business in 2020, mostly gleaned from your podcast, thanks, I would, I would think that the only thing that would matter to a cable network is to maximize their key demo ratings and to have more hit shows, which in turn will allow USA and its parent of its parent company, Comcast, to keep carriage fees high or raise them as well. Dave seems to think that there is value to the USA network and WWE maintaining a monopoly, but doesn't it benefit them more to have competition in wrestling because they might be able to instead pick up AEW and get the same or better viewership for a lower price. Let's try to put ourselves into the mind of the, not just the the WWE executive as usual, but let's try to put ourselves into the mind of the USA Network executives here and see what's, what's motivating them and what they value and what's at stake in this situation. And then maybe from there we can unravel the game theory and the strategy. So if I'm the USA Network, first of all, I probably have certain amount of commitment and loyalty to my business partner, WWE, who with the exception of a brief separation when they ran off and had their affair with Viacom in the mid-2000s, with the exception of that, we've been in business together since 1983. If I'm the USA Network, I probably have covenants written into various contracts with various distributors, cable companies, satellite providers, for Raw, explicitly probably, if you're USA Network, Raw's your number one show. Maybe not in terms of ad rates, I don't know, but definitely in terms of viewership. You're paying, over the course of five years, an average annual value of $265 million. You are less than a year into that agreement. You're going to continue to be making those payments, which are contractual and escalating through September 2024. And because those payments are contractual and escalating those payments in September 2024 will be the biggest in the lifetime of the contract. So if the USA Network, there's a long road ahead here, road ahead here and there's a long road of payments to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars a year that USA is going to make to WWE. In that sense, it's, a, it's an investment, a long-term investment with an expiration date that may or may not be renewed. What's the worst case scenario here? I guess the worst case scenario for WWE for with the USA Network is that Raw ends up becoming a lot less viewed, a lot less popular. AEW overtakes it and becomes the cool brand, and USA Network is left with this property, these media rights to Raw for the next four years. They're left with this expensive property on its hands that's no longer popular. Now, sidebar, if, if I were Comcast, in fact... I would be doing everything in my power to convince Vince McMahon to sell me controlling interest in WWE. Because Vince McMahon is quite possibly destroying your most valuable property on the USA Network. And you stand a better chance of preserving that value if you can get him out of the way. At least out of the way of creative. As unlikely as he is to relinquish that control. Not to mention there's a number of synergies uh, in, in, in great ways that Comcast and NBC Universal could put uh, WWE's assets and intellectual property to use. But anyway, we've talked about that before. I need to write a blog detailing that. But something else may be on the table for NBC Universal slash the USA Network. Not only do I need to protect the most valuable property on the USA Network, which I am married into for the next four years, 
but I might also need WWE content. I might also need the pay-per-views to get moved over to Peacock. I might need to make that play. And if WWE in general becomes a lot less popular, those pay-per-views are a lot less valuable and a lot less useful to me. But if I can keep Raw and WWE a hot property and keep it popular, I can make Raw popular and keep Raw highly viewed and keep everything happening on Raw really exciting. And then, then we can maybe buy the pay-per-views, put them on the Peacock uh, streaming service, and then drive people to watch the storylines uh, that culminate on the pay-per-views, get them to buy Peacock. So that that's a lot of value and incentive on one side. Not to mention, I want to keep Raw hot so I can sell ads for it. And sell the covenants. Okay. Now, so that's that's a lot of the weight on one side. Now, what about the other side? Let's, let's just re- reread uh, part of this intelligent listener's email here. But doesn't it benefit USA Network more to have competition in wrestling? Because USA Network might be able to instead pick up AEW and get the same or better viewership for a lower price. Okay. So here we're, we're entertaining this, this alternative where... <clears throat> You know, it's 2022 and negotiations are happening and you're trying to pick up AEW, uh, in the, which you would pick up at the end of 2024, probably because AEW, let's say gets the option gets picked up by Warner Media. That's when they become available. That's a long way off, but, but let's say you, you pick up AEW instead. It's a, by then it's a more popular program than Raw is. So the answer is thinking, why not just let the chips fall where they may? USC Network, I'll pick up whichever program is most popular at the end. As I think this through, I think that's that's uh, betting on a lot of uncertainty. What if you can't pick up AEW? What if AEW, for one reason or another, has a lot of comfort in the Warner Media universe for some reason? And let's consider to get a property to make a move that is to not renew with its current partner probably costs an extra premium. I mean, think about if you're in your current job and you're, you know, happy enough with the job or or if you, if you love the job, you are not going to quit your job and take another job for a $1 raise or a $100 raise or maybe not even a $1,000 raise. It's going to take an impressive offer in, ex, in excess of your current deal or what your current employer is giving you or is offering you in order to get you to make the move. Now I'm just theorizing, but maybe that's analogous to media rights negotiations also. So I guess as I think this through, I, I, I lean towards believing that if I'm USA Network, I view the, I, I, I want my current partner to stay as strong as possible and I want their competitor to not get strong. And if we have to stamp them out, I guess that's what we have to do. I don't want the competitor to get stronger or because I don't want to count on just being able to sign up the competitor because for one thing, that creates a lot of uncertainty. What if it costs me a ton of money to, to get that competitor more money than, a, than it makes sense for me to spend? Or what if, in fact, it just results, the, the, whatever happens between AEW and, and, uh, and, and WB just results in sort of the, the net destruction of, of media value? What seems a lot more safe and secure and certain is that I, I keep my current partner, who I'm in business with, who I want to help out, who there are other possible synergies that I could could do business deals about. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I, I want that partner to stay as strong as possible. And it helps that you're probably giving me uh, NXT at a pretty cheap rate too. And maybe I'll give you real money for NXT eventually if it performs well enough. And maybe even in the short term, if, if AEW can sort of 
compete and supersede Raw as this cool brand, thus decreasing the viewership of Raw. It becomes perhaps harder to sell ads. It becomes harder to sell the covenants to the distributors that make that play a role in making the USA Network very valuable. So as I sit here and try to empathize with the uh, USA Network, I think that's that's that that's my best uh, guess about what's going on. So I guess I do agree that USA Network is is likely to be very much uh, in in the same mindset as WWE that they want to compete offensively or defensively or whatever. They want to compete with AEW and prevent it from getting more popular, prevent it from doing better viewership. And just the, the fact we still see these small moves like NXT being on the sci-fi network with, uh, with a rerun on, on Wednesday, just so in some way they put some, you know, whatever they can do, put it on the table. NXT on Wednesday night going head to head with, uh, in a rerun, going head to head with the first run of Dynamite. That That seems to tell me that that's their motivation, that their motivation is to compete, uh, the USA Network. And it removes really all doubt or plausible deniability around WWE's uh, public message that they're focused on on them. They're focused on NXT. I think I think human beings in general and people in power uh, may often tell a lot of falsehoods. I think in a lot of cases, I, I don't think people are intentional liars in most of the cases where they are telling falsehoods. I think there are known lies and there are unknown lies, right? And I think most things that we call lies are unknown lies. People delude themselves and tell themselves a story, which they believe and internalize, and then retell it publicly, or privately for that matter. They believe the falsehood and then tell people as if it's true. Uh, Not in this case. I I can't believe that Paul Levesque really believes that a big part of his job is not to compete and to harm AEW as much as possible from a business standpoint. And then from there, just a reminder, you can go to patreon.com slash russellnomics. I'm reopening support that will go into effect October 1st. You can sign up now. Go to patreon.com slash russellnomics, and you can sign up to be a $5 member if out of the goodness of your heart you want to support. I remain committed as ever to provide all this free content, ad-free. We do important work here that few, if anybody else, ever does with a level of expertise that no one else in wrestling media has. I am committed to circumvent the ad model and use your support to invest in things like website hosting, computer software, including Microsoft Excel, audio equipment, research-related fees, to things like Pacer and Polestar, and other useful subscriptions that will help me, help you, help us better understand the wrestling business. Again, you can sign up now for $5 monthly at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. You won't be charged until October 1st. In the non-major U.S. promotion wrestling world, which I don't talk enough about, but did you know there is a great WrestleNomics-like blog out there written in Japanese uh, at pwanalysis.com by Rodian, I think is his name. You can follow the, the author at Rodian, Ph.D., R-O-D-Y-O-N, Ph.D., and all this stuff is completely in Japanese, but in the latest blog on pwanalysis.com, there is a a year-over-year comparison comparing 2020 to 2019, uh, comparing the events in Japan 
which I think is really great for giving us an idea of, you know, to what degree has Japan gotten back to normal here in this era of the coronavirus. And I don't think anybody's running full capacity events yet in Japan or anywhere in the world for that matter, except for, well, except for maybe some warehouses in the United States. But that notwithstanding, at least in terms of the number of events, it looks like Japan, as of August, I get the full month of August just ended, it looks like Japan in August is almost back to normal. So of course, things started to affect Japan earlier than they did the United States. New Japan stopped running events at the end of February. So I guess January is the only sort of pure year-over-year comparison we have. So January 19 to January 20, talking about years there, January 2020 was down about 4%, uh, 172 events versus 165. And I don't think there's any COVID effect there, right? And then we see things really fall at the lowest point in April, where there were only 33 events in April 2020 compared to 201 the year prior. And then gradually things gradually grow back up and return to normal. Again, April, the Valley, with a a negative difference of 83%, down 83%. Then the following month, down 70%, down 52%, down 23%. And now in August, only down 9%. So August 2020, 166 events in Japan compared to 184 the year prior. Number of companies running, though, is still down by double digits of percent in August, still down 16% from the year prior. But maybe that's not so bad. January itself, probably pre-pandemic, down 10%. But of course, attendance is still down tremendously. In April, there was zero attendance. The August year-over-year comparison is still down 77%, of course. Everybody's not running at full capacity. So number of events, very close. Number of promotions, pretty close. Attendance, unsurprisingly, way down. Again, you can read this blog at pwanalysis.com. I'm, of course, it's written in Japanese, uh, and I'm I'm using Chrome, so it just sort of offers the translate to me. And it's uh, there's charts here. Of course, you get the uh, the auto translated uh, English, but the charts are the, the titles are in English, and of course, the everything else is just numbers. And finally. Some deep thoughts. This came to me. I had an insight. I had a, like an epiphany, like a dreamlike state. I woke up in the middle of the night, and as, as everyone does, as I often do, I had a WrestleNomics thought. It was maybe 3 o'clock in the morning. I sort of sat up suddenly in bed, and I said, you know what? What if, what if economic booms in wrestling are not necessarily about creating stars? Stars get created, okay? But what if what comes first and, and, and Vince would love this. What if what comes first is the medium gets transformed? At least in WWE's case, it gets reimagined. And, and maybe somebody replied something to this effect to me on Twitter or said something somewhere. I, I don't remember where, though, unfortunately. So maybe this is not even a completely original thought. But think about the Attitude Era, those of us who were old enough to have lived it, and how it was a the pro wrestling medium getting transformed and jarring expectations. So what do I mean? I mean, the wrestling programming was, especially in WWE's case, and probably, you know, somewhat in WCW's case as well, but it was it was kind of a, a kid's program. It was largely geared at kids and families. People of roughly my age fit right into that. If you were born roughly in the middle of the 80s, like I was, and, or even a bit older, so you, you saw more of the 80s, in your memory, 
even through the early 90s into the mid 90s. It's uh, still kind of a kids program, or at least there's definitely places that WWF won't go as far as not getting too violent or too vulgar. And, and in doing that and in depriving, I guess, the audience of, of an element, sort of the way in a wrestling storyline, you might deprive the audience of seeing so-and-so win the title or seeing so-and-so finally get to beat up the manager or finally get something revealed. By 1998, there was, well, I think it's really 1997. It's not important when, but I think we all know that the Attitude Era arrived at a certain point time and all this time of creating sort of this pseudo simulatedly violent kids program it had this edginess opportunity built up for it that it capitalized on and rather suddenly we had a lot of vulgar characters and certainly steve austin raising middle fingers and drinking beers and there was more blood and more violence and more sexually explicit stuff all these varieties of things that were not allowed and pretty much unfathomable in you know just a few years prior. Now, by the way, this is not me making like a moral argument or a you know a moral justification or even an aesthetic. This was great TV argument. I'm, I'm just I, th I think the attitude error is if you watch it back now, it doesn't hold up and it's pretty terrible. But a lot of it anyway. But basically, I think that, you know the decades of WF being a pseudo kids show built up this edginess opportunity that WF was able to capitalize on with the thing that we now call the Attitude Era. And coinciding with this, you know, maybe this effect had more to do with the star explosion of Stone Cold Steve Austin, followed by The Rock, followed by McFoley and Triple H. Maybe the capitalization of that edginess opportunity had more to do with initiating the boom than Austin and Rock did. And the Vince McMahon heel character, for that matter. Come to think of it, we really leave out the Vince McMahon heel character, I think. You know, I often on this program run through the lists of the great stars of recent history. Hogan, Rock, Austin, Cena, we leave out Vince McMahon. But anyway, what I'm saying is maybe the edginess opportunity capitalization was more the initiator of the economic boom, as opposed to this sort of idea that we ha I think I have in my head, and maybe you do too, of this you know, sort of pure star development, and maybe in fact star development, which did happen, obviously, was a side effect of wrestling being transformed or wrestling jarring prior expectations. Now, is this the only time in wrestling history that this has happened? Maybe not. Maybe that's not the only time in wrestling, or even WF history, that wrestling was transformed and expectations were upset. You could probably describe the mid-80s boom similarly, where Vince arguably transformed wrestling into this more of a showy entertainment style of wrestling. You know, this more gimmicky, larger-than-life events with more colorful characters and with less, although still some, but with less concern for protecting the business and making sure that everybody thought that everything was real. There's more of a willingness to do outlandish stuff that maybe other promoters would perceive as killing the business or something. And from Vince's perspective, he wanted to... I think from Vince's perspective, he thought that the wrestling that he inherited was boring. Just a bunch of guys rolling around in their underwear. And he wanted to bring it into the show business. 
in the WWE uh, revisionist history. Vince took wrestling out of the smoke-filled halls and into the glitz and glamour of WrestleMania and high-production TV or whatever he did. And to an extent, Vince did make wrestling more like a general entertainment, at least to to the extent that he used celebrities with some success, which he's tried to repeat many times with less success, sometimes with success, like Mike Tyson, right? But there in the mid-80s, he used Cindy Lauper and he used Mr. T to great success, great success for his business. And again, like the Attitude Era, jarring the expectations that years of prior lessons had taught the audience about what to expect from wrestling. And maybe the jarring of those expectations, as much as the presence of really charismatic stars like Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper and Randy Savage, contributed to the WWF boom of the mid-80s. So, if this is a viable theory that, and by the way, I don't think this is the only way, obviously, to create great positive effect to a wrestling business. The recent upswing in New Japan business in that, at the beginning of the 2010s, coinciding with the rise of Okada, Kazuchika Okada, it doesn't seem like that coincides with some sort of medium transformation, this sort of transformation of the way that people think about wrestling. In that case, in the early 2010s in Japan, in New Japan, I don't think there's anything that profoundly changed about wrestling or about New Japan's presentation of wrestling. But anyway, at least in, in the in the WF slash WE case, you know, maybe this is an accurate description of, of how things went. WF in about nineteen eighty four or eighty five sort of blew up expectations about what people expected out of wrestling. They had some charismatic stars and, and one star who became a major cultural icon, Hulk Hogan, and they had a major explosion in business. In the late 90s, after being essentially a kids program, resulting from that run in the, that began in the mid-80s, they leaned into becoming more of an adult program and exploded those prior expectations about what pro wrestling, or at least WF, was. And it helped that they had Steve Austin and The Rock, who were ready to become major stars and icons for that change in attitude, if you will. So as we sit here today, you know, the obvious question is, is there a transformation like those two transformations that could happen today that could so positively affect a wrestling company or the industry generally? You know, a relatively minor point in the report from Wrestling Inc. today that I mentioned at the beginning of the program, there is this sentence. Uh, Vince's letter also said these actions are necessary as part of WWE's rebuilding process and going into the, quote, next phase of growth, end quote, for the company. It's, it sort of suggests that maybe even Vince is, is aware of this idea and has been repeatedly trying to find it, to find the, the next way to reimagine. Reimagine is this, uh, this word that is apparently part of the Vince corporate culture. And, you know, we saw it used as basically a theme of one of the WWE Business Partner Summit presentations a couple of years back. We heard Vince refer to the, the idea of selling the pay-per-views off of the network and onto a major streaming player as a transformational change for WWE business. Now, obviously, that, that's not something that really has to do with the creative direction of WWE, the way that the transformation in the, in the mid-80s or in the late 90s was. So is there a, a transformation that WWE or AEW or New Japan or any other company could create to 
cause the next big boom for wrestling. I don't know what it would be. Are other examples of big upticks in wrestling business, do those have more to do with a transformation than they do a big star coming about? Maybe WCW's big boom in you know 95 to 96 has a lot to do with the, the jarring the expectations about Hulk Hogan, you know, the biggest star of the generation. Suddenly go from being a long time and probably tired babyface to suddenly being a heel and jarring those expectations. But anyway, is is there something else? Is there some other set of expectations that could be upset to create another boom for wrestling? I don't see any obvious answers, partly because I think each one of these transformations of wrestling sort of spends something out of wrestling. Maybe the, the, the boom in the mid-80s, the transformation in the mid-80s sort of spends wrestling into being less sports-like and less serious, and it creates a great short-term value for wrestling. But in the long term, over the course of years and decades, it becomes a little bit harder to promote wrestling than it had before, as sort of the mystique of wrestling is spent. Granted, that's not the only instance of the mystique of wrestling being eroded, and I think it, it was sort of inevitable, especially when you got things like the internet on their way. The transformation of the Attitude Era spends the sort of more vulgar and more adult-oriented type product. It spends it. In that, in that sense, you cannot bring back the Attitude Era. What made the Attitude Era work economically was that its content was opposed to what the content had been previously. You cannot bring back the Attitude Era any more than you can burn a match twice. I think that the bring back the Attitude Era refrain that you hear from mid-age adults roughly my age is not some great suggestion or insight, but rather I think it's people my age who are longing for their youth. So what's the next transformation? And maybe are there transformation opportunities that have already presented themselves and have maybe even been missed? Maybe the elevation of women, the women's evolution, as much as a lot of people feel like that's tired WWE branding, maybe that was the next upsetting of expectations. Obviously the expectation that wrestling is for men. It's something that men participate in and men watch. And men are the stars. Until maybe about 2015, with the call-up of the horsewomen. And maybe that could have been a great economic era for WWE if Vince knew how to let stars become stars. WWE did get a little bit of it, maybe in a muted version, with the elevation of Becky Lynch. But maybe in the line of the rock and wrestling Hulkamania era, and the Attitude Era could have been the Women's Evolution Era. If only stars were allowed to become stars, and the creative mind who controlled the fate of the women's evolution or revolution actually understood the need for revolution. I guess that's a good place to mention the really sad passing of, of Casey Michael at age 26. Uh, this week, uh, Casey Michael, who started the website Squared Circle Sirens and you know, did some exceptional reporting for uh, related to women's wrestling and related to so many of the WWE tryouts, 
Uh, he was clearly somebody who was connected to the wrestling business in ways that none of the more traditional uh, wrestling reporters were or are. So it's a, not only profoundly sad when uh, somebody so young passes away, but it is a loss for uh, for wrestling fans and for wrestling uh, media as well. So that's about all I have this week as Andrew Yang has weighed in on the story of the day. That is former U.S. presidential candidate Andrew Yang tweeting at 10.30 p.m. Eastern on today, Friday. If I'm not the Secretary of Labor, I'm pretty confident I'll have his or her number to talk about the ridiculous classification of WWE wrestlers as independent contractors while controlling their name and likeness for years, even for something as benign as Cameo. Come on, Vince. You've already deprived the folks breaking their backs for you of healthcare, security, recovery time, retirement benefits, and fair treatment regarding licenses and royalties. At least let them make a living off of their own names. Many of them need it. This is a series of four tweets, by the way. Yang goes on, I grew up a wrestling fan, and it's been sad to see so many of my childhood heroes pass away early. I feel better knowing that they and their families were being fairly treated. I look forward to doing what I can for the next generation of performers. I know how tough it is. Vince, you'd better hope your old friend Donald wins, because change is in the air, and changes are long overdue where your corrupt labor practices are concerned. It would give me great pleasure. The people know. And and with that, uh, you can read my SWAT analysis of WWE and my SWAT analysis of AEW at WrestleNomics.com in an ad-free environment, free of charge, WrestleNomics.com. If you would like to send uh, your questions that I might read on the air, who knows, uh, email me at uh, Brandon at WrestleNomics.com. You can follow WrestleNomics on Twitter at WrestleNomics. Follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston, and I'll talk to you next time.